Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. As you're turning there, I'll make a confession here this morning of uh, slight discomfort. So I'll be preaching with no paper. I'm trying to experiment with this tablet. I'm inspired by Ken Bush. I know Ben Robertson does it too, but he's younger, so this is easy for him. But if, you know, so I did tell Ken this morning, if I bomb, it's his fault. Um, it's always good to have that out um, there. So if you, if I pause and it's, uh, you know, new habits can be quite unsettling. So this won't be the only time, even if I bomb, well, no, I want to rephrase that. Um, but uh, this is a process, let's put it that way. And one that you might enjoy because the difference between paper and computers is paper has no battery life. Um, so anyway, that's <laughs> just saying. So, Well, yeah, Brian, I don't have that mic on, so um, I'll turn that on for the table. So I'm getting word from the mothership. But anyway, um, <laughs> Psalm 119, actually, as the bulletin talks about going from verses uh, 1 through 8, we're going to actually do the first two sections, uh, 1 through 16. And so if you'll turn there and look to the Word uh, with me, um, let's consider God's Word. Hear His Word to us. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the, in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the ways of your testimony, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his scripture. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come to you now, I pray that you would indeed open our minds as you open our hearts, that we might learn from you but not only in a way that informs our minds and our worldview, but in a way that shapes us, a way that renews our minds, reshapes our feelings, our values, and all that we are. Lord, we do pray that by your Spirit, you would be present with us even now. We pray this all not only for our benefit, but for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is himself the Word incarnated. Amen. Recently, I watched the movie 
Field of Dreams picked up in it midstream, probably for the 200th plus time. Uh, it's a classic, and I'll memorize the line by line, but this time it was a line that stuck out to me uh, in a way that had not necessarily before. It's, it's a very familiar line. It's a line that most of you know. It's not, if you build it, he will come, uh, but it's another one at the, toward the very end of the movie, and it's when the primary character, Ray Kinsella, Ask the question of Shoeless Joe Jackson. What's in it for me? Now, I'm sure most of you probably know the story, and if you haven't seen it 250 times, you've probably seen it at least 25 times. But for the two or three of you here who have not seen it at all, here's a quick recap of the story. Ray Kinsella is a farmer in Iowa who begins to hearing voices while he's plowing his corn. The voice declares, if you build it, he will come. He has no idea what it means, but having heard the voice over and over again and going through research, he comes to the conclusion that this voice is calling him to plow down his cornfield and to build a baseball field for reasons that he has absolutely no idea. Once the field is completed, the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson, who played for the 1919 Chicago White Sox, known as the Black Sox because they threw the World Series, he comes to play and then starts bringing friends. And so a bunch of ghosts are playing baseball on this field. But toward the end of the film, Joe Jackson invites a friend of Ray Kinsella to go into the corn to find out what is beyond this life. And Ray Kinsella is angry about it. He wants to know. His curiosity is like all of our curiosities. We want to know what's next. We want to know what's beyond. We want to know more than we know now. And Joe Jackson told him, you're not invited. And so in response to that, he says, I, look, I've done everything I was asked. I've plowed down my corn. I've built this field. I've allowed people on my yard. And I've never once asked the question, what's in it for me? And Joe Jackson says, what are you saying? And Ray says, I guess I'm saying, what's in it for me? And to which Joe Jackson says, is that why you did all of this? Did you do this for yourself? Now, we understand the sentiment that takes place there because the what's in it for me question tends to really reveal a, a selfishness. That was the point of that conversation. Although only moments later, it was revealed that it was actually for him and that, at least in this situation, he was able to reconnect with his father who he had been estranged with for years. And so when he came to the conclusion that it was not about him, he received more than he could have possibly asked for. And so we understand the question, what's in it for me, in some cases is inappropriate. And in a lot of ways, it's inappropriate to be asking in terms of the church. There's a number of people, I being highly among them, who continually confront the narcissistic, consumeristic nature which the American church has, uh, has taken upon itself, where choosing to be part of a church is no different than choosing between Walmart and Target, where joining a church or seeking God is, uh, the words of sociologist Christian Smith, uh, not a whole lot different than choosing your therapist or a butler, where you just call God when you need him and then you leave him alone and he'll leave you alone when you don't feel that you need him. And as this more and more has characterized American evangelicalism, and some of us get frustrated with that, and as I almost um, ad nauseum continually say, 
Maybe this is why the American church is so impotent, so weak, so faithless. It's because the primary question we seem to ask is, what's in it for me? Now, being a good Presbyterian reform guy, my response is, it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. I mean, check your catechism. The primary purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And yet, even with that kind of a statement, it's a reminder that while our primary focus is to glorify God, even as Ray Kinsella figured out, when our orientation is to the glory of God, there is something in it for us. And the same is true in terms of a practice that... In one sense, of course, you understand that I'm going to preach and be in favor of it, which is reading your Bibles, which is what I want to talk about this morning. Some of us have grown up, and I was discipled early on with being reminded of the instruction of the Scripture to study, to show yourself approved. It's a beautiful verse and probably easier to be seen as beautiful for some rather than others. Now, I don't know about most of you. I do know of any of you who went to William & Mary, this doesn't really apply to you, but some of us were not particularly diligent students growing up, and if you went to William & Mary, they wouldn't have let you in if you weren't. I have a sister who got in, but they would have never let me in. But anyway, that's a whole other issue, because through most of my life, I was not a particularly diligent student, not until I got to seminary. And so the whole idea of study to show yourself approved, it just speaks to me of kind of like earning grace. Just, I'll ignore that. At least I was able to ignore it for the better part of 25 years before I did go to seminary. Study, why would I do that? Now, some of you who are students, you do it because your curiosity is piqued, because there's challenges to be met, because, some because somebody told you to, so you do it, and you do it well. But if the only thing that we think of in terms of studying scripture is because somehow it will show us, I don't know that it reveals the beauty that God also encourages us to be found when we engage in the practice of studying his word and making it our own. In Psalm 119 particularly, which is the longest chapter in the book, in all of the Bible, and even with the longest chapter there is a singular focus looking at one object from a number of different perspectives and that is the word of God the writer of the psalm just talks about the beauty and the benefit to those who are students of the word to those who make it a practice to read and to study the word of God What's striking is the number of times that we, as we look in these verses, and it's really throughout the entire chapter, but we're only going to look in these first two sections today. And from that, I'm only going to draw out a couple of, a few illustrations of the benefits that God promises to those who make it a practice to be in his word. Because there are benefits. It's not always inappropriate to ask the question, what's in it for me? Let's look to the psalm now so that we get some idea of what's in it for me and what's in it for you. And the first benefit that I think that we see in this text seems to be pretty evident is in the first two verses. And it's the benefit 
of being blessed. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong, uh, but who walk in his ways. I mean, the repetition of the word blessed there is not accidental. It's a Hebrew pattern. Many of you understand this as students of the Bible. But when there's a word that's repeated in close proximity, it's probably important. And it certainly is true here. And the promise is those who belong to him, those who are reading his word, they are blessed. But one of the questions that I think we need to ask is what exactly does that mean to be blessed? Because the word blessed, at least from my experience, is one of those words that Christians throw around a whole lot. But you don't hear it a whole lot in normal conversation. It's not unheard of, but the frequency certainly gets ratcheted up when you show up to an evangelical church. This is blessed, and this is blessed, and get a blessing, and hope to get, I mean, we just throw that indiscriminately around and assume everybody understands it, which then may be. It may be one of those words that just is kind of self-explanatory, kind of like the word is, define is. Well, is, is. I mean, that's, I, don't, I can't go any further than that. I've never bothered to look in the dictionary to see what the dictionary definition of is is, but I assume it just says is. And blessed may be one of those. I mean, if you think about it, what does it mean? I mean, if you're blessed, what more can you possibly ask for? But does blessed simply mean blessed, or does it mean anything else? Now, a number of years ago, there was a popular TV preacher who uh, determined that the word meant happy. In fact, he wrote a book based on the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he titled his book, The Be Happy Attitudes. And years ago, when I uh, would refer to the book, I would mention that there were a number of benefits to the book. Chief among them, at least in my opinion, was that it makes great kindling for a bonfire. And so, if you have it, it works that way. But then as I studied the word a little bit longer, I realized he wasn't entirely wrong with that, even if some of his message might have been uh, not necessarily biblical. Um, the word actually is used by many uh, very faithful, very um, astute uh, Bible scholars as happy. It means more than that, but it certainly does not mean less than that. And by that I mean this, is when you consider the word blessed if it, as a synonym for happy, we can look at it this way. There's an awful number, uh, there's many people who are out there that are unhappy. And most of the people who are unhappy desperately desire to be happy. And they want to know, how do you be happy? And one of the primary advices, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the secular world, is summarized in the old hymn that says, count your blessings one by one. In other words, if you find yourself unhappy, one of the ways that you can begin to experience a level of happiness is to look at the ways in which you have been blessed. Now, that's not a guaranteed recipe. It actually can be frustrating for some people because there's all sorts of things that factor into our being unhappy. But the reality is most of us who are experiencing happiness, it's rooted in something other than just chemicals that make us peppy. There's reasons for it. There's a foundation for it. And for most of us, it's because we recognize that no matter what's going on in our life presently or whatever challenges we may be experiencing, there is a foundation. There is a reservoir of blessings that we know or believe that we have. And those blessings lead us to be happy. And so we recognize that those two words certainly go together, but they're not necessarily exactly synonymous. 
Now, this passage tells us blessed are those, and it doesn't just say blessed are those who belong to the Lord, although that is uh, what, the, what Scripture says elsewhere in, in Psalm 145. But this Scripture says blessed are those, particularly, who walk in the law of the Lord. And so there's a condition. Here's how we are blessed. Those, or who is blessed? Blessed are the ones who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, no doubt some might be wondering, law? I mean, that sounds kind of restrictive and oppressive. I mean, who's happy about laws? Hey, good news. There's a speed limit now on your street. Hooray! I've wondered that all of my life, a new law. Laws don't seem to make us happy. In fact, sometimes laws do seem oppressive and restrictive. Laws do sometimes seem designed to rob us of our happiness or at least of our freedom. And certainly that's true for the attitude of many who come to faith in Christ, many who are in the church in terms of when they hear the idea that God has laws, will hear simple things like, well, we're not under law, we're under grace, and, and they, they assume that that means that there's no more place for the law. Apparently the psalmist doesn't agree. He says the word of God is spoken by God, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus, who has come and is the grace that we need, he says he didn't come to do away with the law at all. We need to realize that there is a place for the law. But before we consider that and consider how, it's, how we're blessed by the law, it might be important for us to consider it from another angle. And recognizing that all of this life is really built upon life, at least life in this world, is built upon certain laws. Laws of nature. Laws of creation, which God put into order. Consider for a moment just one of those laws, which we would consider the, the law of gravity. Now, imagine for a moment that with the law of gravity, I just, I'm explained to by a, uh, by a professor of physical science, and I declare, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. This law of gravity seems so restrictive and oppressive. What do you mean I can only keep my feet planted on the ground or rise above it for only a certain time? I'm going to show you. So I travel over to D.C. and climb up into the Washington Monument, or I just go onto campus and top of the Wren Building, and I'm going to demonstrate to all of you people who are down there below me who are restricted by this law of gravity, not me. And so I step out off of the top of the building, and I'm free, and I'm happy, and I'm celebrating my freedom and your bondage for, oh, about, I don't know how the law of physics work, I'm guessing somewhere less than three seconds before I'm no longer happy. In fact, I'm kind of all busted up about it. Does at that point God say to me, I got you now. I was trying to tempt you, I was trying to trick you, I was trying to teach you a lesson. It's not the reality of our God. He enacts laws because they have a purpose. And just as the keeping of physical laws greatly enhances your opportunity to, well, live um, and to experience joy. So it is for his spiritual laws. The laws of the universe, the laws that God has put in, in when we break them, we hurt. When we keep them and live within them, we find our way. And the same is true for the laws of God. We need to understand that the laws of God are not established in order to restrict us or restrain us in any way. 
But God gives us law because this is the way the world works. He who created it also put the laws together so that we, understanding the law, know how life works best. Some of you are familiar with Francis Chan, who is a, a good writer, uh, very winsome, also a tremendous speaker. And he's made the observation that when God, when God says you shall not kill, he's not trying to ruin your fun on a Friday night. He's just saying, don't you understand that life is a whole lot more enjoyable if you're not worried about somebody killing you? When he says do not steal, he's not suggesting that you shouldn't have anything. He just says life is a lot more peaceable when we're not worried about that which we need being taken from us by somebody else or us taking it from somebody else. When we live in accordance with the laws of God, the way that life is supposed to work, we find in those laws more joy than when we are violating those laws. And the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who walks in the law of the Lord and is a student of it and understands it because the psalmist understands there's a general principle is that while there is pleasure and sin for a season after that comes destruction and it's vitally important that we recognize we constantly have a decision and i say this particularly for teenagers but for all of us really is that we have to constantly moment by moment make this choice a moment of what appears to be pleasure could lead to a lifetime of pain but a moment of what might seem to be discomfort especially if there's pressure outside of us to conform. By withstanding that, by enduring that discomfort at worse, frees us for a lifetime and an eternity of pleasure. The scripture reminds us that we're blessed when we keep the law. And we are blessed by a God who has loved us enough to reveal himself through his law. Because the law itself points us to God. It is a righteousness and reminds us of what he is like. It reminds us that he is holy in a way that perhaps we are not. And in that sense, the use of the law is not only to remind us of God, but it, that breaks us. That's what we're told in the scripture. The purpose of the law is not simply to give us direction, but the law kills. And while we usually like to avoid the whole idea of death, it's when we are killed, when we have nothing else, when the law is killing us, that we then are free to turn to Christ. Or maybe a better way of putting it is, it is only then when we are killed, dead to ourselves, convicted by God's law, that we do turn to Christ, where we find not only forgiveness, but power and joy. God's law serves its purpose, and we are blessed not only in the way that it guides us, but in the way that enables us to die and be resurrected in the person of Jesus Christ. Because when we have violated the law, we've experienced that brokenness, and we know we have nowhere else to turn, it's then the grace offered us in the person of Christ, the giver and the fulfiller of the law. That's when that is sweet. We see another benefit that comes to and the second one we see is in verse 7, and that is praise. The psalmist says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. Now, that might at first seem a little bit odd. I mean, I, I enjoy getting praised. You're free to do that anytime you want. Email, letters, cards, gifts, cars, new house, any of those things, um, I'm, I'm willing to accept. But that's not talking about 
us getting praised. So how is this a blessing? I mean, this is about giving God praise. And of course, we read that. We know God's worthy of praise. But going back to Ray Kinsella, okay, we give God praise. We come to worship God. What's in it for us? And the quick reformed answer is nothing. Just suck it up, give God praise, and then go home. Come on back next week. But that's not the way God operates. And that's not what is in my view here. And it's not even really consistent with the genuine nature of praise. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. Go back a couple of weeks. Go back to the women's U.S. soccer team winning the World Cup. For those of you that were watching the game when Carly Lloyd kicked the midfield goal for her hat trick, putting the U.S. up four to nothing, securing. People all around this country, whether in bars or in their own home, were standing up and shouting and praising Carly Lloyd, the U.S. women's soccer team, the United States, all these things. I mean, they were ecstatic and, and, and yelling their, the praises at the top of their lungs. Were they also depressed? by that moment, sad, kind of bitter about it, in the midst of their screaming and shouting and smiling and joy and slapping hands, were they also uptight? I'm not talking about what their status was beforehand, and I'm not talking about what they might have reverted to right afterwards. I'm talking in the midst of the expression of praise. What was their emotional state? And the reason that they were offering praise is because they were ecstatic and they were filled with joy. There was something worthy of praise and they expressed it. And it's in the act action of giving praise that we actually find there's joy in that giving. It's not the duty of praise. It's the act of praise. And just as in that moment, for those of you who celebrate the World Cup, we're filled with joy where everything else in the world, no matter whether, you know, foreclosure on your house, whatever problems and relationships, for just that moment, those things were not controlling your emotions, only the object that was praiseworthy. Well, the psalmist is telling us that when we are in the word, and particularly when we learn God's righteous rules, which is another uh, metaphorical way of talking about God's law, which is in the Old Testament. A lot of times the law is a, a shorthand version for the word of God. But when we understand the righteousness of God and the gift that he's given to us in his law, when we understand of not only that they point us to God and God who loves us give us guidance, but the law breaks us and leads us to Christ. When we understand God's righteousness, therefore we begin to see the glimpse of the glory of God, some aspect of it. When our minds begin to ponder what it means for a righteous God who loves us enough to give us guidance and direction through his law and to give us a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior, it becomes breathtaking and it leads to a joy, even if it's sometimes fleeting for us, pushes out everything else that would reasonably cause us to be sad and depressed and bitter and angry. But while we're in that moment of reading and engaging in the Word, and God becomes very real in the living Word for us, there is something in it for us as well. So we move on to the other. We see two other benefits, and I'm going to just talk about them very briefly. In verse 9, we see purity is a benefit that comes to us. 
how, how can a young man keep his way pure? This is not limited to just men, but uh, this is true for anyone. But then again, young men are pretty stupid, and so as those of us who have been one, we kind of remember that. And so it's a lot harder, uh, I think, maybe. Maybe that's what they're saying here. But here's the answer, by guarding it according to your word. In other words, as we take in the word, as we not only are reading the word, participating in the word, but we're allowing the word to dwell within us, it brings a level of purification. It enlightens, it guides. It brings a reminder of the forgiveness that we experience in the person of Christ when we have field. It, it, it gives us the direction that we need. It's a gift that comes from God. And that gift keeps us pure. While Christ himself purifies us, this is keeping, walking according to the way of his word, is a way in which we live rightly. We become less messy. A friend of mine um, has been a Young Life regional director for well, a long, long time now. Several years ago, I was having lunch with him, and it was kind of shocked as one of the guys who had been in his Young Life club when he was just an area leader had come up, he sees him from time to time. He's actually in Chattanooga, and ironically is the Young Life leader at Red Bank High School, the very high school where the shooter uh, went to high school. So I don't think he went to Young Life, the shooter went to Young Life, but he knew him. But another kid from that school, that graduated from that school, had come and asked him and said, hey, um, Dave asked him, how are you doing? And he said, I'm really struggling. Will you pray for me? Nothing unusual in that. But Dave said, no, I'm not going to pray for you. His eyes got big. My eyes got big. What do you mean, no? I mean, isn't this how that conversation's to go? You ask for prayer. I tell you I'll pray. Whether I do it or not, it's a total whole other issue. At least that's the way most Christians are. Especially your minister. And he just said, I'm not going to pray for you because what you need is not more prayer. What you need is actually to walk according to the way that you know you're supposed to walk. You can have every minister in Chattanooga pray for you, but if you are not committed to walking in the way, you're going to continue to struggle with the lessons of the issue of impurity. And the guy said, you're right, and he walked away. And then Dave said, let's pray for him. So anyway, that's... Um... <laughs> but he has a point. So many of us talk about our struggles and we ask other people to pray for us and the reality is God has already blessed us. Blessed is the one who walks in the way of the Lord. He's shown us how we're to go. He's empowered us by his Holy Spirit and he's given us his word as already with us. Prayer is wonderful. I'm not in any way suggesting anything other than that. But prayer is useless if we have no intention of obeying what God is, what we're asking for prayer for in the first place. And so we are able to promise here is there is a benefit for us who struggle, feeling like we're just wayward or we just don't have a way or that we are just guilty. Here is the way, is when we walk in accordance with his word, there's a couple of things that happen. One is we recognize his word points us to Christ and no matter how good we are, we're not good enough. But no matter how bad we have been, we cannot, it's not that we're forsaken from him. But it constantly drives us to Jesus where we are able to find his forgiveness and his strength by his Holy Spirit. But it also guides us and tells us the principles of life by which we make decisions. Some things are black and white. We are to do these things. We are to avoid these things. Doing them, we, are, we merit nothing. But we minimize the potential for a lot of problems. Just like obeying the law of gravity keeps you from a lot of pain, walking in the way of the Lord keeps us from a lot of pain. But when we fail, or when we know we keep it and our attitude is not right, or when we 
just don't, it, the, wor- the way of the Lord is to continually be rooted in him. We're blessed because we know we have the support and the power and the guidance. That has been given to us long before we were born. And it is there for us as we drink in the word and allow it to shape our minds and our hearts. And the last I will point to just from this, and these are not the only ones in these verses, certainly not the only ones in Psalm uh, 119, but the last one is delight, verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now, I know that many people find it difficult to actually delight in Bible study. It's not always easy. Theological concept says that all of Scripture is understandable, but it's not equally understandable. But what is necessary for our salvation is plain to be seen through the words of the book and particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. And the things that are more difficult, the things that are more complex, the reason that he calls us to be together is that we may gain insight. I might have something to share. You consider whether it is true according to the text, whether it's plausible. I might not know, and you might have something to share with me. We share with one another because that which is harder to understand, it's not that nobody gets it. But study doesn't seem to be a delight for everybody. But when we understand what's in it for us, and we consider the benefits that we receive when we make the conscious decision to be a man or woman of the word, we realize it is far more joyful than the emptiness that comes with not being a people of the word. I think the psalmist understood that. I mean, we, these are not superheroes that were in the scriptures. They're broken, needy people like you and me. Sometimes life was great. Sometimes life was filled with challenges. They experienced it all, and God records their experiences for us. And the psalmist here, understanding the blessings and the benefits that come to those who are people of the word, he has come to the realization, whether it was hard for him or whether he was just smarter than I am, and it makes it easy, that all of those things make it a treasure. His life is enriched. His life is benefited. His life gains value because of the benefits that come through the feeding and the eating and the reading of this word. Now, I will say this as I, uh, as I wrap this up. It was benefited from Eugene Peterson. He wrote a, book called, uh, wrote a book called Eat This Book, and by that he wasn't meaning eat his own book. He was talking about feeding on the scripture. And Eugene Peterson, in that book, makes it pretty clear that, at least he believes, is that the way that we read the Bible is at least as important as the fact that we read the Bible. And I want to challenge some of you who perhaps are Bible readers that, you know, you put your daily quiet times and you're just diligent for that. I don't want to minimize that. But if you're going through the motions, the fact that you have read it, is different than the fact that you have appropriated it and seen it as a treasure. You may do the duty, but you don't feel the blessing. The issue is because you're not necessarily identifying. And here's what Peterson says. 
Do we read the Bible for information about God and salvation? For principles and truths that we can use to live better? Not that that's a wrong way of doing it. But there is a better way. Or do we read it in order to listen to God and to respond in prayer and obedience? Of course, my goal and what you expect my goal is to say, read your Bibles. But that's really not my point this morning. It's my hope. My point is to bring your attention to what God promises to those who are willing to engage his word, to hear what the scripture says is God speaking to you, to your hurts, to your joys, to your questions, to your beliefs. It doesn't just show that you are a better Christian than somebody else. In fact, if that's your point, you're missing the point. But the benefit to those who are in the Word, who are eating it, feeding on it, enriched by it, is that everything we desire and sometimes seek elsewhere is promised and has been experienced from all ages by those who are committed to it. I want to encourage you this week, or really for the next several weeks, to work your way through Psalm 119 and think about the promises that are made to you and about the God who is making those promises. I want to encourage you to prepare yourself before you're coming to worship and see if there's a difference. Read a portion of scripture that reminds you of who God is Saturday night and again on Sunday morning. Wow, it's so busy. Probably talking 10 minutes cumulative reading and thinking about who God is five minutes at night, five minutes in the day before you come and then meet that God as your mind has been renewed. And see if the promise and the experience of the psalmist isn't true for you. That his word becomes a delight. Richness. Sweeter than honey. Because when you do it, we realize it's true. Not just truths, but the true, and we experience its promises. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the word that not only instructs us, but the word that reveals to us about the word. And I pray for us as we are a people here, whether we are knowledgeable or feel overwhelmed in our study of the scriptures, that we would taste and see not only that you are good, but the delight of your word. I pray that for us as a people, we would become truly a people of the word, and therefore the benefits that go with the word would become evident in our lives, not to our pride, but to your praise. Father, while life is about you, life in you is truly blessed. Bless us, Lord, that we may bless you in return and bless those with whom we are in contact. That in us, having been formed by your word, they might see more of you and praise your name along with us. We pray it in Christ. Amen.